I don't know how many of you have um, uh, a look-alike. Um, I don't know if, if, if where you go places or, or if you look in old pictures, people go, oh my gosh, you look so much like. Or um, if people look at you and maybe do a double take. You know, it was a few years ago, the um, doppelganger thing blew up on Facebook and everyone was changing their profile picture to this famous look-alike. And um, so whoever someone said you look like, they you know, would go Google an image and put it in their profile picture or something like that. Um, and so the question becomes, you know, who do you most look like? And I don't know what it is about me, but it feels like at every stage of life, I have looked like someone else. I don't know if I just have that face that is not my own, but I tend to remind people of other people. And I'm not sure how to take that always, but I, uh, um, I remember as a kid, um, and this dates me a wee bit, but there was a young child actor uh, by the name of Ricky Schroeder. I don't know if you remember the Ricker. Uh, he had a, a, a series called um, Silver Spoons. Um, and so, again, placing me in the mid-80s, uh, I had this going on for me that my mom seemed to get right on board with to the point that um, I, I apparently had the same shirt as, as him. Uh, this is me in middle school, uh, rocking the middle part. And, uh, and so growing up was like Ricky Schroeder, right? And then you start growing up and you change your looks um, and um, you experiment because now you can have facial hair and you, you, you know, sideburns and goatees. And, and so, um, and it was the 90s, right? So you're trying to live into the 90s. Um, all things turn grunge and flannel. And so I was, I was on board with that. Um, let's go to the next one. Um, oh, oh, sorry, I forgot this one. Um, I, I got a lot of a young Leonardo DiCaprio. Now this is Leo from Growing Pains, if you remember his bit role in Growing Pains. Um, but I, I got a lot of this growing up, you know, Gilbert Grape and whatnot. Um, but then we transitioned more into the 90s, except that I'm not current all the time. So this was probably like 2001. But um, I was playing with facial hair and, and I got a lot of ZZ Top going on because I had this look. Now, this was maybe my ZZ Top starter kit. Uh, but um, eventually, just so you know where this went, um, and all the moms cringe, or, or the girls cringe, thinking, oh, poor Laurel, um, is that that bad boy grew out, I have a red beard, so I dyed it, um, uh, it, it was bleached, and, and, and then it was like grew to tree stump size, so it was probably another, oh, inch or so longer than that. Uh, and unfortunately, I did my best friend's wedding. Um, I had grown up with him since nursery school, and that was the first wedding I ever did in 2001, and that will forever be in his photos. So I, I can't bury it. Even though I wasn't on social media at the time, it never lost. Well, so then the one that I get most often, um, that I will literally get double takes for, that um, I'll be in an elevator and people will look, do the double take. Um, it happens when I go to Starbucks uh, where I won't even be asked what name to go on the cup because it'll just come out and then I'll hear, not even thinking that uh, I'll, just get, I'll just get this. This, this is a real thing. This, this is a couple of few years ago. And so I was like, well, okay. And so you kind of hide. And so then I just said, like, well, I'm just gonna embrace it, right? Because this is, um, 
this is worth going with. So I go thrift shopping and I get the outfit associated with it. So there's been a couple of costume parties where I've donned the look and created my own headshots and passed them out. Go ahead, Monica. Uh, and, and I just embrace and I just believe that you should not give love a bad name uh, and keep living on a prayer. So uh, the funny thing is my uh, son went to camp this week and they had to, they're having a dance at the camp and it was decade dance. So I'm like, hey, well we can go um, 80s Bon Jovi and I have some duds that you can bring along with it. So we're curating this image onto the next generation. Uh, and so it's always fun to start looking around um, and seeing who looks like who. Um, we all maybe battle the case of mistaken identity. Maybe it's our friend that we give a wave to and realize that's not my friend and that's terribly embarrassing. Um, Maybe the worst thing, or worse than a mistaken identity, or who we think we do or don't look like, is um, what's worse than being mistaken for someone else is simply not knowing who we are. Struggling with a sense of identity. Struggling with who am I? And I think that's a deep question. I think that's an age-old question, um, and it's rooted in what I think is our original design to bear the Imago Dei, which is simply the image of God. It's more than a physical statement. Uh, it's even more than a, a personality statement. It's more than a hairdo. <laughs> it's more than a look. Uh, but it's a really important question, and the problem that I see is this, and why I wanted to spend a few weeks talking about identity. Because identity, when we don't know who we are, we end up defining it by simply what we do. And this leaves us in a terribly vulnerable place. It leaves us in a place that sometimes is so vulnerable to the applause of peers, to the applause of strangers. And so, if you have ever uh, we can't impersonate what it means to be a Christ father. If we believe in the resurrection and we've made that our vow, we've said, I do, then that changes who we are, at least in God's eyes. He sees us as, and this is the huge phrase that I want us to understand, in Christ. And so he attaches lots of words to who we are because of a relationship in Christ. Problem is, is that sometimes Christianity becomes more about modifying behavior than it does about heart transformation. And so um, a lot of times we're left up to, again, define who we are by what we do. So if you've ever had success in sports, it becomes very defining because you get a lot of recognition. If you've had a lot of recognition in business, if you've received promotion after promotion, raise after raise, if you've been afford, able to afford better neighborhood after better neighborhood, then it's very easy to define your sense of worth by your net worth, which is really toxic. Because what happens if the stock market turns? What happens if you go bankrupt? What happens if you're like Brett Favre and you've been your whole life till you're 40 defined by your capacity to be a gunslinging quarterback and you're like my body's breaking down I can't walk away from this game because I don't know what to do beer commercials commentating 
And so I just retire and unretire because I don't know what to do after I stop playing football. I had a friend for 25 years, he was on the police force, and, and he worked his way up, he became a sergeant, and, and he took what's called an early drop. And the early drop was an early retirement. And so it, it, it seemed advantageous at the time, but he got to retire by the time of 57 with great benefits and, and a great um, retiring income. The problem was this, he didn't know what to do with himself. So for 25 years, he was an undercover narcotics officer. He had collaborated with the federal governments on, on Mexico and San Diego-based drug trafficking. He had worked with SWAT during um, national, political national conventions that visited San Diego. He had been on um, part of the Secret Service detail in, in personal bodyguard fashion. Um, he, was, he knew all these informants. I mean, he had built a lifetime of service, and they said one day, Go ahead and turn in your badge and your phone. You can keep your firearm. You bought it. We won't be calling you anymore. And so he walks away from this really informed, valuable, intelligent, familiar place to, thanks for your service. We won't be calling you again. What happens when you walk away from a really pressing job and all of a sudden, your inbox isn't quite as full and your phone isn't ringing. What happens when your kids start to grow up and they need you less? I remember talking to a mom who was going through a divorce and she was trying to be so noble and being so focused on the kids. It's all about the kids. It's all about the kids. I said, that's very nice of you. That's very selfless of you. The problem is, is that the kids are young. And in about five years, they're going to be driving. They're going to need you less. And then we're going to be in counseling, trying to figure out who you are when your kids need you less. The danger, when we don't know who we are in Christ, we end up defining ourselves by what we do. Now, it's okay if it describes us, but it shouldn't define us. So what does identity in Christ begin to look like? So, Here's what I want to do. Um, I'm trying to mine the book of John because Jesus makes several self-defining statements where he says, I am. I am the resurrection and life. And tonight I want to look at where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And this is kind of an interesting thing to be such a self-defining statement, but he says, I am the bread of life. And um, when he makes these I am statements, and I've called this series, I am changes who I am. So when Jesus makes statements about who he is, I believe it informs who we are in Christ. So I'm going to encourage you to grab a, a bulletin for tonight and just jot some notes down. I want to look at a couple of passages. Um, <clears throat> but he starts in John chapter 6. And Jesus uses one of the most common, relatable, accessible metaphors in bread. Now, bread is an interesting thing. It's sort of the staff of life, right? Every culture through all time has had the notion, this part of everyone's diet, some version of bread. Not everyone has had their version of salsa. Uh, not everyone has had the, their version of noodle or, or whatever, or ketchup. It's, it's bread. And Jesus comes along in a most relatable way to say, I'm the bread of life. In other words, I am, I am central to health. I am central to your appetite to your dietary needs 
And so Jesus now says, I'm the bread of life. And here's where it gets a little wonky because he's trying to give a metaphor and then he takes it maybe one step too far. He says, I want you to eat me, which is kind of a creepy thing, but he's not talking about cannibalism here. But you have to understand when you're talking to a Hebrew culture, they were so rigid in terms of what was considered clean and unclean to eat. If they're hooved animals, we don't separate. We, we need to separate what is dairy from what is meat, and um, we can't eat bacon, which makes them really a questionable diet. Uh, and so here, Jesus, to all of these good kosher-keeping people, say, eat me. And you're like, really? What does that even mean? And it says that people started to turn away, and he doesn't give an apology. He doesn't give some kind of disclaimer. But he's trying to talk about the image of bread central to our identity. And so he's suggesting something that is fundamental and what we'll see throughout scripture and that is this that by consuming him we can be one with him i think what ends up happening is that god becomes eight percent of our life he becomes when we grow 22 percent of our life but he always maintains sort of a wedge of an overall pie that we just try and manage and make time for he's saying consume me so that you and I could be one. Now, let's just look at a couple passages. Jesus answered very truly. Uh, I say to you, oh, back up, please. Uh, and this is just, uh, he's, um, uh, this is very truly, I, I tell you that you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Back up. All of chapter six, you could consider the bread chapter. Jesus is getting his bread making on. So beginning of chapter 6, we see Jesus doing the feeding of the 5,000. No one comes prepared. No one's packing a picnic. There's no drive through They're out in nowhere. The disciples find, uh, find a kid with, with some fish and loaves. You know the story, and Jesus multiplies it. Here's what's fascinating. They say 5,000. It's probably totaling fifteen to 20,000 because it was only 5,000 men. In other words, 5,000 heads of household. That was the way of counting. So if you think about a spread of 20,000 people who are not equipped for their next meal, and you get 12 baskets full from Jesus' multiplying prayer, I'm, I'm asking the question, at what point do they know a miracle is unfolding? At what point do they realize there's no jumbotron, there's no social media thread to follow, there's no amplification to broadcast, he just distributes them. So if you're one of the disciples, which I think he was trying to speak to most, and you just start passing out and it's not ending, you just keep having enough. You've got fish and chips and it just keeps going and going till 20,000 or so people are fed, which begs the question, at what point do they realize that it's a miracle? And it makes me wonder, do we even know half the stuff that God is doing when it's occurring. Just because we don't see a miracle doesn't mean God isn't at work. Just because I didn't get my last prayer for my way doesn't mean that God's not at work. Just because a father dies and kids get sick and kids have needs and brothers are going off the deep end doesn't mean that God's not at work. 
And I think this is really critical. But here's the problem. Jesus starts accumulating a consumeristic crowd. There is no welfare system, and so if you are living in an agricultural society and someone's giving handouts, I'm getting more and more committed to the way of Jesus because it's a free meal. And so there is this new following that's growing, and Jesus is winning the populist vote. And so Jesus then goes from the feeding of the 5,000 to he retreats, and then he, they take a boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the first thing we see is, as he's leaving, why he felt the need to get away is it says in the text, John chapter 6, they wanted to make him king by force. Who doesn't want to make Bernie Sanders and all of his promises for educate all this stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Bernie Sanders has some wonderful tenets in terms of caring for the most vulnerable among us. I don't think his plan is completely fleshed out in terms of how we're going to pay for it all. But the thing that I hear most is how many people feel entitled to something for nothing. And this is problematic. I think this is kind of the audience that Jesus is attracting. I don't mean to sound so political. It just feels kind of comical. Because how do you pay everyone $15 an hour living in rural America? I, anyway, sorry, sorry, apologies. There is a desire in all of us to want to get something for nothing. And my concern when it comes to our faith relationship is that we pursue the blessing of God without the source of it. Jesus as the rainmaker versus Jesus as the source. Jesus as I get my way, or Jesus as I conform my will to his. Consumer Christianity is really problematic. It's a road to disillusionment. So they want to make him king by force because they're getting just fed and hooked up. And so then the disciples leave in a boat. Jesus says, I'll catch up with you. He walks on water. They get to the other side. They meet him. Jesus describes this scenario. Do not work for, oh, go back for a second. Do, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which, go ahead. Thanks, for the Son of Man will give you. Uh, for on him, the, uh, on him, God the Father has placed the seal of approval. Then they ask, what must we do to uh, the good, what, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked, what sign will you give that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is the Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread, right? We're in. Like, sign me up. I like this delivery program. Jesus said, you don't get it. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. So real quick, um, there's this scene out of, they're trying to say, are you the new Moses? And, and so Moses, uh, 
was sort of only the delivery man. Moses wasn't the source. Jesus is the source. And so they're trying to compare him to Moses. Well, Moses kept giving and giving, you know, because they were like wandering in the wilderness, and this manna from heaven kept showing up day after day, and, and yours only showed up once, right? He just fed them. And now they're like, can, can you do that trick again? Because that's what happened to our ancestors too. And he's like, oh my goodness, I've, I've got a consumeristic crowd that keeps following me. And he's like, no, 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 don't miss the source for just the blessings. And, and so then they kind of turn and, and walk off. And, and what Jesus is saying here is you need to consume me as you'd consume food. Allow the food that I am to be digested in your life so that you can't tell the difference between you from me. And so I think for us, this is, this is the fundamental message of the Bible, is to learn to be one with God. One quick illustration of this. There's a, there's a, um, a, a story out of 1 Samuel chapter 18. David has just slain Goliath. These are familiar stories to us. We, David, this little boy, comes and takes on like this nine or ten foot giant and he lops off his head. And after that, it says that Saul, the king, doesn't want to let him go. He's not going to go back to sheep tending at this point. He's like, no, you're staying close to me. And, and Saul's son, Jonathan, and him became like best friends. Now, a lot of people want to misinterpret the relationship between Jonathan and David. David is this now up-and-coming war hero, and this is warrior culture here. But we read in 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says, after David had finished talking with Saul, because he's just like killed Goliath, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. There are people today that misinterpret this and want to justify and talk about that Jonathan and, and David became one in spirit as if this was a homosexual relationship. This is not what the text says. It is a misinterpretation because this is warrior culture we're talking about. And he says, from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to the home in his family. And, next slide, Jonathan made a covenant with David. This is covenant language. David, because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. What we have here is a connection between them that is so deep, and he uses the illustration of a covenant relationship, becoming one man, which was really common in, in, in essentially in, in, in warrior culture, and it's essentially saying, I want to become like blood brothers. Maybe the closest thing that we would have to this is what we have in the marriage covenant where a spouse takes on the name of a spouse, takes on the checking account of a spouse, and, and it becomes joined as one life under one roof, under one household. This is probably the closest thing. But he gives him these, these sort of lavish gifts because what he's describing, he's representing this new life together, sharing of an identity. So the tunic, the belt, the bow, the sword, that's, those are symbols of nobility and royalty. So to see David walking on the street, you would think it was Jonathan. This is what it meant to be one. It was covenant language. What Jesus does in the New Testament is pick up on the same covenant language so that we can understand what it means to be one 
with him. He's become human. And so he embraces our identity as a human. He walks a pathway of identification to become one with you. And in order to get the whole of me is to consume all of me. Assimilate me like bread into all of you. See, if you take on the identity of someone, it's to be in covenant. You get everything that they have. Jesus says, take me, take all of me, become one with me. And he says, I'll, I'll raise you up again on the last day. I'll give you my life. You get what I own. I'll give you eternal life. No one else owns eternal life. I do. In me, you get that. And as we receive our identity, I think then we receive our purpose. If we know who we are, <laughs> then we know what to do. But we're so busy trying to figure out, well, when should we start a family? Or, oh, should I take this job or this job? Or should we move or not move? Or um, should I buy this house or this house? And he's like, settle who you are and you'll figure out what to do. And this is what I think it means to be in covenant relationship. Um, there was a story of a father and a son and it was a, from an affluent family, and the father was a great art appreciator, and his son even took on, not just took on the appreciation, but the artistic talent. And so they had this thing, most fathers and sons end up having a sport together, maybe a business together, but this father and son loved art together, and their rather large home was a beautiful gallery. But one day, the son got drafted in in, into the military service. And while he is away, he was killed in action. And one day after the battle, after the war, the father gets visited by one of the soldiers who fought with his son. And he described how his son would even have these moments around and, and would use his art. And he talked, described his skill. Um, and the soldier came and described how in one moment, even at the sacrifice of his own life, that he had saved. So he wanted to come and give thanks. He didn't know, how do you thank someone, you know? Thanks for your son, because he saved me. But he drew a picture of his son. Best he can, he wasn't a gifted artist. He was sort of, kind of had some high school level art classes, but he had painted a, a, you know, a canvas and said, this was the image that I remember your son. And, the man graciously and gratefully took it as sort of a, a, a fond keepsake, not because of its high quality, but because of its high sentimentality. In fact, he gave it a place of prominence over his fireplace so that he could be reminded not just of his son, but his son's sacrifice for this story, right? So eventually the man dies, but he has no heir, and everyone is sort of chomping at the bit to sort of capture uh, this now public auction of all of these magnificent works of art. And so this auction gathers with kind of some buzz in the community, people looking for kind of rare works of art and, and maybe even to get a good deal on them to see what the bidding was like. And as the auction begins to gather, they, the first piece that comes up is the piece that's been pr presented on, on the mantle. And it's the, the image of his son. And so everyone's like, 
really? That's where you're starting? That feels like leftovers. We know the goods. We see the list. You know, they've got their auction list. Bring us the good stuff. And so everyone's kind of getting a little restless, and no one's really bidding on it because it just feels like sophomoric or something. So they're like, come on. Well, and so he said, who, who will bid? And so, you know, kind of starts it. It's kind of quiet, and $100, and no, no one's biting, and he drops it 50 and, and who will bid $10? And finally, the gardener, who had a connection, but wasn't a wealthy man, says, $10, I can afford that. I can pay $10 for that. To which he said, sold, $10. And at that point, closed the auction, and the auction was then over. Because the secret stipulation of the will, when everyone's like, get on with it, where? Said, if you get the image of the son, you get all the rest, too. So whoever would take the son, the image of the son, got the whole collection. I thought, what a great picture of what happens when we choose to say, I do to Christ. See, the invitation for us is to let our lives be defined by who he is <laughs> and let that inform our purpose. He says, I'm the bread of life. And so tonight, we want to break bread together. We want to have communion together. And um, I'm aware that a lot of you, uh, you know, it, I, I don't like to be surprised with communion. Um, it takes a level of examination. It takes some level. And if you guys want to come up and join me, we're just going to sing. Um, and um, I, I just want to encourage you to pray uh, as God prepares our heart. I told you that tonight would be a participatory night. But there is something that he says, I want you to consume all of me. And it makes it hard when we've made communion out to be sort of a sampler platter. <laughs> but what he's looking to do is to re-engineer how we view our life. And he's saying, consume all of me. And so hopefully our identity can be found more and more in ever and increasing ways in him. And then we begin to know what to do. So let me pray with you tonight, and I would just say as we kind of bow our heads tonight, um, I don't know if tonight you have never had the chance to stand at an altar and exchange vows with the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I do to him. I've had so many conversations with people who have grown up with a familiarity of God, but not a personal knowing. And so maybe tonight, you have this tugging at your heart. You have this awareness that you've never actually surrendered your life in light of who Christ is. And I would just want to give you the invitation to pray tonight that you could be one in Christ. Christ is to say, I surrender. To be one in Christ is to say, I receive your grace and your forgiveness. To be one in Christ is to say, I want to align with you. I want to say, I do. And take on your name. that is a prayer that you've never prayed, then I would just simply invite you to pray that prayer. 
I just want to encourage you, don't just cohabitate with God in sort of a generic way. Invite him in. Invite Jesus in. And then for the rest of you who may be walking with Christ, I want you to just consider the cup and the bread. I want you to consider a life in Christ and how he identifies with us in our humanity. You say, I'm not worthy to take of it. He says, no, I identified with you. I'm not asking you to identify with me. I identify with you in your brokenness, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, financially. I get it. So we come to him with gratitude. We come to him with repentance saying, heal the dark areas of my life. song and then we'll take the elements together. We'll teach you another new song. God of the dead God of the dead God of the breathing again God just lead you through a responsive reading and uh, I want to just invite you to stand with me as we take the Lord's Supper and uh, if you would just kind of recite the yellow parts um, uh, that come up afterward and we'll just make this our time together taking the cup he blessed it and he said take this and pass it among you as for me I'll not drink again until the kingdom of God arrives and taking the bread he blessed it he broke it and he gave it to them saying this is my body given for you. 
eat it in memory of me. And he did this, the same with the cup after supper, saying, this is my blood, blood poured out for you. And Jesus says, those who come to me, I will not turn away. Let us share the food and the drink as Jesus ate and drank with people who are hurting, people who are weak, people who are hungry, and people who are fearful. With generosity born of forgiveness, the feast is God's and all are invited. Pastor Theo and Sally to come up and administer. If you would just come up and uh, let them uh, speak a word over you. And as you come, they'll just take a piece of bread. You could dip it in and take it as you, and then just return to your seat. And uh, we'll just continue worshiping tonight. Lord, thank you for moving and living and having your being. Uh, thank you for being fresh and real. Thank you for speaking. Um, thank you for healing. Thank you that you're the God who sees. You can mend broken hearts, broken dreams. Thank you for identifying with us in our humanity. 
becoming one. So help us to walk in the newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing I want to encourage you to do, I, I included a thing. Um, this is a homework assignment, by the way. Uh, I, I love it when we can take this to, to the actual God's written word. And one of the things Paul writes, he always writes to um, never calling people sinners. He calls them saints, even though he says, I'm chief among them. But when he writes so much of his writing, he, he, he uses a key phrase, this in Christ or in him or with him. And um, I've made this a practice, uh, and, and so many of my Bibles have this, but if, if we would just take, say, the book of Ephesians, it's four chapters, and go through and simply find the verses. It makes such a difference when we read a passage of Scripture uh, actively rather than passively, when we're sort of... Um, uh, trying to identify themes or, or specific things, I think it has a way of speaking uniquely. So four chapters, and I would just encourage you to find all of the verses that simply give the phrase in Christ, in him, or with him. And just underline it, because my point is that starts to help shape who we are in Christ. Those are identity statements. And one of Paul's major thrusts is that we can know who we are in Christ. Not who we are as a good or bad business person, not who we are as a good or bad spouse, not who we are as a good or bad parent, not who we are as um, a good or bad chef or whatever, but that we might know who we are in Christ. And so as your kind of devotional time, I wanna encourage you to just kind of go through that and that might be part of our conversation next week as we gather in tribes. And so um, with that, we have some hospitality time and uh, I just wanna encourage you to linger longer, meet someone as we go. We do have a dinner destination tonight that is rather fun. And um, if you've never been to Chilantro, which is, uh, they have now not just a trailer, but a brick and mortar on Burnett Road, I wanna encourage you to come out. How would we describe this kind of Korean, Korean barbecue, Asian, Mexican? ish. Uh, so come be a good Austin foodie and out to dine with us tonight. And uh, we are, I'm so glad you came. And I hope that it, it's encouraging time when we come in with the weight of the world, whether that be because of what's on the news headlines or what we bring into it just in our own life and that we can walk in the newness of life in, in, in community together.